Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're speaking with the writer, Deshaun Charles Winslow, about his new novel, Decent People. This felt like a very different kind of novel for us, um, because it's what, you know, we talk about this in the conversation, but it's what I would describe as a cozy mystery, or actually, as I saw it described on Goodreads as a cozy mystery, which is that kind of Jessica Fletcher, but it's not exactly a Murder, She Wrote vibe, but it really takes you inside of a small town and lets you meet all of the characters and the people in the midst of solving a mystery. And so that's not the kind of thing that we typically cover. And I thought it was really fresh in that way, but also gave us, as listeners will hear in the conversation, so much to think about in terms of queerness, race, sexu- you know, other forms of sexuality um, in a small southern town. So it tackles all these really meaty topics in a, a genre that's maybe a little bit off the beaten path for us. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this is exactly a genre book at all, but it, the form is kind of a Trojan horse for all the meteor subject matter and uh, ideas and kind of philosophical ideas in here. That's cool. I I, I really appreciate that sometimes about less, you know, esoteric novels, just that you can actually get at so much with a, like a, a more sturdy form because you don't have to figure out a ton of formal stuff. You're just kind of like right there in the story. Yeah, he tells us about how the form of the mystery novel actually allowed him to get somewhere that was that was not the original form of this particular novel, but that that allowed him to like get a frame and a focus that then allowed him to explore all of those other, as you say, like meteor issues. I was going to ask you, Eric, since this is based in a really small town in the South. I know you're not you're from a city in the South, not a small town. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I should say that it's like, I believe the city that I grew up in is over 500,000 people now. So not exactly like a super small town, but I definitely know towns that are population 1300. 1300. I wonder how many people live in West Mills, which is the town that Deshaun writes about. That's the sense that I got, that it's kind of because everybody knows everybody. I would guess that this is a town of less than 2,000 people, let's say. And with a lot of people that have stayed there for generations. So that's the other part of this story that we have, where it's like you've got, there's things that kind of resonate across time because a family has been involved in a particular thing or has, you know, been an institution, let's say, in the town for a long time. And that that provides a kind of like more grist for the mill in terms of the drama and the tension. Exactly. And if someone's, you know, father or mother was a certain way, of course, their children will be dealing with that shadow in terms of how people meet them and kind of encounter them in town, I bet, for their for their whole lives. Like you can't really live down the past in a small town either. Exactly. There's sometimes, you know, devil's advocate. I feel like sometimes even in large towns, right, or big cities, it's like you every big city has its own small town enclaves. You know, so it's like, like he brought up this thing about when somebody in a small town sees you, you know, in a a liquor store buying like Bud Light and then calls their friend to be like, I didn't know Kate Wolf, you know, drinks beer. (laughs) I didn't know about this. And I'm like, yeah, that is definitely small town life. But I'm like, I also feel like you would do that kind of thing if you saw somebody at like BevMo. (laughs) 
<laughs> like of course. Well, yes, something. of course. I would judge. I'm sure, you know, I'm I'm a judgmental person and I'm a really nosy person. So it's kind of like, thank gosh, I don't live in a small town because I'd get kicked out <laughs> because I have so much in everyone's business. But yes, you judge someone that you see on the street, but then the thing is like, you might never see them again. And in a small town, you see them five seconds yeah, later yeah. somewhere else. So uh, you live like a lot more with your prejudices and your judgments because those are the only people around. So they just kind of build on each other. Right. I, yeah, I, I think the setting is yeah. so fascinating. And that is some something I just really loved about this novel, like this kind of little fishbowl setting and, uh, you know, all the detriment of that. You know, and I mean, you know, some some positive things, but it seems like a lot more negative ones actually from our conversation. Yeah, <laughs> not least of which is the three three dead bodies. Right? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, well, let's listen to um, us speak with Deshaun. All right, let's do it. We're so happy to be speaking with the writer Deshaun Charles Winslow today. His first novel, In West Mills, was awarded the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, an American Book Award, a William Morris Award for Southern Fiction, and it was also a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Lambda Literary Award, and other honors. Originally from North Carolina, Winslow is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and now resides in New York City. He joins us to speak about his most recent novel, Decent People. Also set in West Mills, North Carolina, the book takes place in 1976 when the town is still segregated. It focuses on a crime, the calculated murder of three siblings in their home. Marion, Marva, and Lazarus Harmon have been found dead, and there are plenty of people to suspect of having wanted to kill them, including their half-brother Limp, whose fiancé Joe is determined to prove his innocence, an acquaintance Eunice, whose teenage son Marion has wronged, Savannah, a white woman who was close friends with Marva and shared a drug habit with her, and Savannah's father, Ted, who served as the landlord of the siblings' pediatric practice in West Mills. Alternating perspectives between many of these characters, the book untangles the tightly knit and interrelated stories of people in a community who know each other intimately, sometimes too intimately for comfort, exploring the ways in which a need for privacy and autonomy can become secrecy, even conspiracy, as well as the corrosive effects that racism and homophobia bear out across the decades. Thank you so much, Deshaun, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, Deshaun, I just wanted to start off with a quick, just take us inside the world of West Mills, because like, as somebody who I went every summer to North Carolina as a child, grew up in Kentucky. So it's like, it feels very familiar to the kind of small town in the South you know, in terms of everybody's in everybody's business, even when they, and almost especially when they say that they're not, <laughs> that church is also a place where gossip is shared, you know, at the same time as communion wine. Well, sorry, Catholic reference, probably not applicable here. Uh, but can you just take us inside that town, you know, which you've now been in for two novels? Sure. You kind of described it pretty well. It is a, a very small community in which people indeed know everyone and they may not know each other intimately but they know the origins of families they can recognize an outsider right away they know who drives what kind of car who drives fast who drives too slow who you know and it is a town where people really don't have the luxury of anonymity at all and 
these people love each other, but at the same time, they often get on each other's nerves because of that containment. West Mills is a still segregated town, even in 1976, and the canal is the color line. And people mostly stick to their side of the canal, except for purposes of commerce. That's the only time there's a lot of mingling is for financial gain. You know, I lived briefly in a small town, and I remember that it was, you know, it was kind of nice to be able to just sit on the stoop and see everybody go by and have that easy relationship and know everybody. But I, even in that small time that I lived there, I, I did find it oppressive as well. Did everyone know your business, knew where you'd been just because of the proximity? And I wonder if you grew up somewhere like that and how it felt for you if you did experience that and how you think it kind of shapes, you know, the tone of this novel, that real small town life. Yes, I grew up in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is next door to South Mills, North Carolina. So Elizabeth City is a little bit bigger. More people live there because there's a university, there's a sort of big hospital and a Coast Guard base. But it still has quite a small town vibe, oppressive vibe, because you can go into the grocery store, for example, and be in line behind a neighbor and they turn around and look to see what's in your cart. And if they see that there's a case of beer, then they go home and call their friend. So-and-so was behind me in the grocery store today with a case of Bud. I didn't know he drank. I didn't know she drank. And then the next thing you know, everyone at church knows that you bought a case of beer. Meanwhile, you were buying them for your employer's party, <laughs> you know? And so it can be very oppressive in that way that people make assumptions by things they see. They make assumptions by people they see you with. And yes, I will say it was oppressive for me to live there. And especially as a as a queer person, I left as soon as I graduated high school. I want to get into that because that's a huge part of this novel. So on the one hand, we have the frame story. So there's Joe Wright, who is kind of at least one of our main focalizers throughout the story. She's from the town. She's going back. She's marrying Blimp. And her brother, Herschel, basically talks about exactly this. He had to get out of town. I'm not going to give anything away. We later learn more about what happened there. But you know, he had to leave town. And at the very beginning of the book, he says, I can't go back to the South in the way that you, meaning his sister Joe, can, because that's just not a place for me. And you know that, and there's a lot of unspokenness. And so on this theme of unspokenness, I mean, can you talk about the scene of a kind of rural queerness, I guess I would say, or like queerness in the South, or especially Black queerness, as it operates in this particular moment of the novel, and whether or not you think those things have changed as we've moved forward in time to the present? So from my experience, when I was growing up in my hometown, there were definitely, you know, a handful of known gay men, but many of them sort of stayed to themselves and some even got married and we all knew, <laughs> you know, we all sort of knew why they had gotten married, but I think largely queer people in small towns like where I grew up left because they could have community. They could be around lots of other 
queer people and not just the other four, you know. I only grew up knowing of a handful, but I can only imagine my town would have had thousands if they had felt permitted and safe to stay there. That's the thing that's so weird is like when you go back to those towns, especially now, you see like a more visible queer presence. Like the place where I grew up now is apparently allegedly one of the best places to live if you're LGBT. And I'm like, <laughs> wait, what? Was this the same yeah. place that I grew up in? Because you're right. There were the people that you saw that you noticed or were visibly signified, let's say, as like queer. And those were usually, and I think this is true for the characters in your book too, those are warnings, right? Like right. a guy who is known to be gay is somebody that you don't want to be, even if there might be all kinds of people that let's say are men who sleep with men, mm. right? And on this theme, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you see the secrecy around queerness as actually part of the circulation of secrecy that, as Kate was suggesting in the intro, kind of keeps all of these people bound together, but also with a series of like, let's say like shifting masks or mirrors that kind of only reflect certain parts of themselves with certain people. I'm glad you mentioned masks because I do think that all of the characters in this book, queer or straight, I do think they are wearing thin masks. I mean, some of them, their masks are heavier, like Ted, for example. But in terms of the queerness, Leroy didn't really feel a need to try to hide his queerness. I mean, he was just a 14-year-old living his life and not even, I mean, I guess he's aware of his queerness because of the magazines that Enos finds, but he's not feeling necessarily that he has to change it. He is keeping it quiet, but that's because he's a teenager. But it's the other people who want him to change it. It's his mom in particular who wants him to be different altogether. But I do think many of the characters are wearing different types of masks for different reasons, for respectability, politics, and to be respected in the community and not be associated with one thing or another. Like Eunice doesn't want to be associated with her birth mother. And so this leads her to want to be an excellent mother so that her son has no kind of shame at all. Yeah, a lot of masks, queer and straight. You get that even in the way that people talk to each other when they kind of address each other by their full names or miss that, you know, or miss this. And and then sometimes people will say like, stop it with that. Like almost just like stop with this mask of being cordial when actually there's something deeper that they seem to want to talk about. <laughs> it's interesting because it seems like the novel, I think, is bound together by like long-term effects of racism and long-term effects of homophobia. But in the way that the homophobia seems like the thing that pushes people to go north. But at the same time, I think that the South is often scapegoated for being racist in a way that like the North isn't. It's something I heard Imani Perry talking about recently, just that people can look at the South as though like, oh, I can't go there, you know as though those same problems don't exist in the North. And also there is also homophobia in the North. You know, I think it's maybe the difference between a large city and a small city in the end. But I wondered if you could talk about that as someone who, you know, writes like quote unquote Southern fiction and the certain stigmas around the South. And the characters also have this because most of these characters have spent some time in the North. 
And so they've experienced both places and ways of living. Right. So I grew up in a family where a lot of people live or have lived in the North. And so when people would come home for family affairs, holidays and stuff, I would hear the comments that some of the Northern people would say, oh, y'all still do this? Oh, y'all don't have a this? And so I picked up all these attitudes about the North and the South. And then when I moved to New York myself, I started to realize that while there's a lot of anonymity, there's still segregation, <laughs> you know, and I, this was 2003 that I moved to New York. There's still heavily segregated neighborhoods. There's visible racism every single day in the workplace, on the street, you know, and homophobia. Some neighborhoods, a gay person is told, well, if you walk with your partner through this neighborhood, don't try to hold hands or don't touch each other. You can't do that in that neighborhood, you know. And I just would think, oh, wow, but it's 2003, four or five in New York City, and I can't hold hands with my boyfriend in this neighborhood. No, you cannot. You will get beat up, <laughs> you know. And so when I write, it's something that I want to include in the books that the North and the South, yes, very different places, but sometimes attitudes are the same wherever you go. And that's around race, around sexuality, around class, especially. I just wanted to make sure I touched on all of those things. And I think I do so a little more in Decent People when I have, there's a part where Joe mentions that there are racist people in the North and they may not be descendants of Southern slave owners, former slave owners, but racism exists there nonetheless. The way that you write these characters and the way that you write the setting shows that you have like a deep and abiding love for the South as both like social setting, a place to obviously explore problems <laughs> and secrets, but also a place to explore, I think, you know, I think, for example, about like queerness within the gospel choir, the South, on the one hand, like you're saying, we see it as a place that is, or culture tends to imagine it as a place that is backwards in all of these ways. But sometimes the on the ground experience of being in communities in the South is that in their own way, they kind of make space for everybody. So I think that there is a kind of interesting, like love and critique that happens in your writing. And I just want to hear you talk just a little bit about kind of what the South means to you, you know, and what you see as like the potential and the promise of life in the South. Yes, I do have a, a love-hate relationship with the South. <laughs> I'll be honest. And, and specifically with my hometown, because as you mentioned, there is a way that they can make room for people who are different. And your mention of the choir, I do find that that's where a lot of queer people, queer men especially, gravitate towards, you know, and especially if they have some musical abilities. But I don't have a real answer other than to say that I think I love the South because it's familiar and I grew up there, but I, the South also caused me harm that I didn't receive when I moved to the North. And so I think what I try to point out in my writing is that the South is not all good, but it's not all bad in the same way that the North isn't all good and all bad. <laughs> I wish I had a more specific answer, but I think I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, love-hate relationship with it is how I feel, I think. 
listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Deshaun Charles Winslow about his novel, Decent People. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Catherine Ma back with us on the line today. Catherine is a San Francisco-based writer and the author most recently of The Chinese Groove. But she's joining us today for this week's book recommendation. So Catherine, what book are you recommending? I'd like to recommend the short story collection, Thank You, Mr. Nixon, by the author Gish Chen. Gish Chen is a writer of wonderful range. She writes great novels, very incisive essays, but I'm a particular fan of her short stories. This collection looks at a number of decades of US-China relations and the people both in China, in the United States, and the greater community who are affected by monumental historic events in ways both small and large. Some of her people are born in China and are living through disruptive times in China, very challenging political and economic times. Some are born in the United States. Some travel back and forth. Some migrate. Some marry. And the people in the stories overlap through personal and business connections. And that makes the collection fun because you have a sense of a whole community of intersecting lives. I first got to travel to China in the 1980s and 90s. And some of these stories, I believe that Gish Chen perhaps wrote them, or at least based some of the stories on trips that she might have taken during that time, because she really captured those early years of China reopening to the West. And she brings it all the way up to modern day, to pandemic times. And so we have a wide range of time periods and of situations, which makes the book fascinating to me as a kind of portrait of these two countries and the way their history has intersected over half a century. She does it all with her signature style and wit. Nobody is funnier on the page. Nobody has a greater sense of irony, I think, than Gish Jen. And I enjoyed it for its content, but also I have a sense when I read these stories, and I was rereading one of them last night, I have the sense that here is a writer entirely comfortable in the genre that she's writing in. It's almost like she has internalized how to structure a short story. You don't feel the author laboring to fit everything in, you know, to get in the timeline and characterizations and political and historical information. It's just done with such ease, such style, such ironic wit. I'm very envious of what she's created on the page. And I think they read very fluently. And I took great pleasure in them. At the same time as they are very funny, they're very moving. She has a story early in the collection about a mother who is returning to China. She's been separated from her family and she hasn't been able to go back. She's gone to the United States and raised a family of American children there, but now she's going back for the first time. It's a very humorous story, but also the end is just heartbreaking. That sounds really great. I love all that kind of You've given us like a craft recommendation at the same time as it is also like a, a cultural recommendation and a kind of storytelling recommendation and a pure pleasure recommendation, which I love all of that together. Could you just give us the author and title one more time? Thank you, Mr. Dixon by Gish Chen. 
That sounds wonderful. We've been speaking with Catherine Ma, author most recently of The Chinese Groove. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Deshaun Charles Winslow, author of Decent People. Just to go back to this idea of the color line in West Mills, in the novel, Marion, who's the most kind of powerful of these siblings who are murdered, wants to open up her pediatric practice on the east side, which is the white side. And um, Limp is, you know, he's he's talking to Joe about it. And he's kind of saying that, you know, he's proud of Marion for wanting to do this, but he also thinks it's ridiculous. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about his reaction to her wanting to be on the white side, like what's ridiculous about it to him. It's like, he's proud of her for not abiding the color line, but what aspect of that move does he think is ridiculous? I think that what he means is this is still a segregated town. It doesn't matter how much education she has. The white people on the east side don't want her to integrate their side of town. They don't want her taking their business or even being next door to their businesses. And I think he's suggesting that she, or what I mean to suggest in that book is that she may be in denial about where she's moving back to, having been in the North so long where a white-owned business could be on the same block as a Black-owned business, and that back in North Carolina, at least during this time and in this small town, that just would not fly. But yeah, he is proud of her. He's glad that she is a doctor, and he likes her chutzpah. He's very proud of that. But he also thinks that she needs to get with the realities of where they are. It's interesting because, you know, Marion and Lamp are half-brother and sister, so they shared this father, but their upbringings were really different. And Marion comes from a family that is really wealthy. And it is almost like isolated, more isolated from other members of the Black community of this town because of their wealth. And their father, it sounds like, it's interesting because, you know, in the news, because of the events in Memphis over the last week, it's, there's been a lot of talk of like, Black people can also be agents of white supremacy, as though people are just kind of like coming to that, this idea. And I, I was thinking of it reading your novel because the father of the Harmons, Jesse, he is someone who has sounded like helped steal money from black farmers, for instance, kind of done things to get money that weren't very ethical. And that side of the family is somewhat isolated from other people in the community. Yes, I definitely did want to touch on that idea that sometimes when in a setting where most black people are poor or upper working class, there can be resentment towards the black people who financially do, who do better, you know, just, I mean, I think jealousy might be the most honest thing to call it, but especially if the person is gaining money in bad ways, you know, but on the flip side of that, I think that sometimes these families who become more affluent become white-like. And I think Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, there's a section or a line where she basically points out that 
the dead family were viewed as the white family, even though they are black, but because they have wealth, they are sort of viewed as the white people in their part of town. And so I was kind of riffing off that a little bit, but it's a, you know, it's a real life thing. I mean, I, I have lived in a community. I grew up in a community where there are not a lot of affluent black people, but if there was a family or two where the parents may have been a doctor or a lawyer or some very well-paying position in the community, their attitudes were different toward the rest of us. It was, you could feel it when you pass them in the grocery store you know, at the stoplight, you could feel it. So I kind of wanted to show these class distinctions within the Black community. I mean, one of the other things that I think circulates almost in the same way that queerness does in the novel is interracial love. There's a, a very interesting way, I think, in which, so queerness and interracial love are these things that on the one hand, the culture of this community you know, which is set in the South, but as we've been saying throughout this entire interview, this is not unique to the South, are trying to put pressure to keep these particular kinds of relationships distinct or to keep them, you know, from happening. Basically, right. you want to prevent queerness and you want to prevent interracial love. And yet, one of the things as we kind of make our way through your story is that those things are happening all the time. And in many ways, they're kind of rewriting the social scripts that actually keep the community of West Mill together. Even at the same time, it's like, well, but what's keeping the community together is also severely damaging everybody, right? Like, I mean, it's a moment of transition, right, in the 70s, culturally there. But, you know, that it's like, oh, well, these two people should not be together, either because they're two men or because one's black and one's white. And yet, I just feel that it's like the body finds a way to justice in its own way. Like, you see those kind of distinctions in real life being exploded behind the scenes. So can you just talk a little bit about how those dynamics function in the novel and actually give you a scene in which a murder like this could take place and everybody could kind of know half of what is really going on? Yeah, I do think that these this determination that the town claims to have to keep you know all the white people together all the black people together and all the queer people quiet or away i think it gives the community it gives the townspeople something to do and worry about in common that sort of brings them together in a way if we all agree that this thing is bad for us you know it kind of brings them together so the purpose of like writing, I think the fact that these characters have such a negative attitude towards things they actually want, some of them actually want, such as the interracial relationship and queer desire, I think it forces them to behave badly. And bad behavior is really good for plot, <laughs> you know, from a writer's perspective. <laughs> and but I think even in real life, I think you live in a place where certain things are not allowed, air quotes, and you take on these rules and these policies and you even perpetuate them. But again, it's just, it's oppression. And I think at some point people, they just boil over and they say, I need to be who I am. In the book, I wanted it to be clear that 
these relationships, especially the interracial relationships, and they are not just products of fetish, you know. These couples really, they saw something in each other and they fell in love. I can't speak of all the couples, <laughs> it would spoil, but it is definitely, these are human relationships that I think transcend race. I really do. Something that another way that we kind of learn about these relationships is because the novel takes such a long perspective in terms of the history of the town and the history of these people and how often like people have come together maybe in ways that weren't scripted or they weren't supposed to. And I noticed that your first novel also kind of has that long perspective, really looking at like, you know, a person's stories through the generations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about writing that way, writing kind of with a character's history and just having that be so much a part of the story. Like, is it challenging to write like that? Is it super generative? Like, what do you like about that more long view perspective that you include in both these books? I think the reason why I go for the long view is because I want to show whatever people are doing or believing in the current time, in the current story. I want to show how that came to be, whether it was something that happened to them as a child or something that was taught to them as a child. And I like to see how they change or don't change. And I like to see those moments where they might almost change over time. And then I'm just sort of interested generally in people's whole lives. I mean, I don't like to write. I don't think I'll ever write like the a thousand page novel. But I think I do rely on backstory a lot because I do want to, I am interested in what a person was like sort of from childhood to the present moment and what sorts of things affected them along the way. This novel was interesting to write because the scope is so short. You know, the murder mystery has to be solved in a certain amount of time. Whereas in West Mills, as you pointed out, it's 40 years, 50 years. And so I did have to restrain myself this time and not do large chapters of 1941, <laughs> you know, large chapters of 1950-something. But I enjoy the long view, and I think it's necessary. As a writer, I think it's necessary, and as a reader, I like to see a person over time, even if it's only glimpses from their past. I want to actually talk about the genre that you're working in. I was looking this up because I was like, oh my God, this feels very different from like the novels that I've read in the past year. And one of the genres that people were suggesting on Goodreads, which I'm not suggesting anybody go there, though your book is very well reviewed. So congratulations. But one of the writer or the reviewers had kind of written that it's a cozy mystery. And I was thinking about that. Like on the one hand, hard to say that something's cozy when you got three dead bodies at the foot of the stairs. But it was something about that kind of like you're inside a small community. It's a little bit CJ Box. It's a little bit Jessica Fletcher, but it's like its own world. And, you know, you've been there for two novels now. And I'm wondering kind of what you think of that genre, like kind of that mystery genre, and what is fun for you from a craft perspective about putting together that kind of story to talk about the issues that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. I love the genre of mystery, but I don't read a lot of mystery. I watch more mystery than I read. And the original plan for this novel was not for it to be a mystery at all. 
but I decided to turn what would have been an accidental death of the Harmons into a murder because I needed some fire under me, you know, to get going. And I was sort of bored with where the novel was going. It didn't have the engine that I quite wanted it to have, that I need, felt I needed it to have. So that's how it turned out to be a mystery. But it was really, really fun to write a mystery while also making sure I paid attention to or showed care to the social issues like racism, homophobia, class, and that sort of thing. In terms of the setting of West Mills, I think I will come back to West Mills, but I am going to put it on the shelf. I'm going to put that setting on the shelf for a while and do something different for my next book. There are characters from both of these novels that I think I want to revisit, but I think I'll just let them sit quietly for a book or two. Speaking of leaving West Mills for a while, I think there's something really poignant about the characters returning to West Mills. A lot of these people have left and have come back. And I think, you know, for people who come back to a small town, it can feel like failure. Like Eunice, for instance, wanted to be a singer. She went to New York City. She found like there are a lot of pretty girls who sing or... The Harmons went to New Jersey, then they found out there's racism in Jersey, like there were the Camden riots that you reference, and they come back. Joe seems like someone whose homecoming is a little bit more sweet because she's found love again, and she's also able to buy a house, and she might not have been able to do that in New York. I wonder about that aspect of these people's you know, journey from going to leaving to coming home, like how are we supposed to interpret the fact that they are all back where they came from in some ways? It's almost like this town is inescapable. How do you see that both as a good thing and a, maybe a kind of bittersweet thing? Or I'm curious. Yeah, it's kind of 50-50 because I do think that in the case of Eunice, I think that so the town has a little bit of a hold on her in that if she had given it, I think Breezy says, don't give up yet. You know, you stay there and keep singing and, you know, you'll take off and record a hit record. But she just kind of gives up and comes back and then becomes pregnant by him. But I think with Joe, I think it is about having the means to go somewhere and be in a calm place and spend less money than she would have spent. You know, so I think it's 50-50. I think that returning home can be for some a failure and some a release of the pressures of the big city. Also, the familial aspect of kind of being, it's like there's this way in which your family is a thing that is almost like to be survived and could kill you and you should get away from it at all costs. But then there's the way in which everyone in the town almost seems like they are so bound together, sometimes familiarly, like, and yeah. that's, I guess it, it kind of depends on your point of view if you think that's a good thing or not. But it does seem like there's a deep aspect to living among people that you are known by and also even related to. I think it is a sense of safety in it. And I think that safety is different for different people. I think if you conform or not even conform. I think if you are just very similar to most people 
you'll feel safer and fit in. You know, I don't know that a queer person who has lived in New York, L.A., Chicago comes back to a small town like West Mills and feels safe. I think they probably come back for some sort of very practical reason, you know. Well, since you said that you are going to be putting West Mills on the shelf for at least the next couple of books, giving all of your wonderful characters a break, are you still looking to kind of stay in the South? Can we expect more Southern fiction or are you taking a journey to the North or even possibly the West? <laughs> no, the book I have in mind for number three is still in the South and still in North Carolina, but just a real town for a change. <laughs> Thank you so much, Deshaun, for speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. That was Deshaun Charles Winslow. His most recent novel is Decent People. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.